From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. COVID-19 virus mutations showed up in Colorado at the end of the year. Now their numbers are growing. The main variant in Colorado spreads more quickly, and one scientist fears it's like a storm on the horizon. Category 5 hurricane 400 miles south of the beach heading straight towards the beach, and that's what these variants represent right now. Then, an aerospace engineer and a former ambassador, both Coloradans, argue more women in national security would make the country more secure. Also, Denverite's investigation into a prominent leader in the region's street art scene. And Amanda Gorman's poem at the presidential inauguration last month inspired a Colorado poet. For our daughter, poems were once the play space with dad. Today, she sees in a poem the only correct scepter for a queen. If you're one of the listeners who gave to this station during the recent member drive, thank you. I'm Audie Cornish from NPR, and your gift makes a big difference. Your support for public radio means the world to us. We couldn't do it without you. It allows us to do our jobs and try to make sense of what's happening in the world and keep you informed about it. Your gift helps us bring you news and information that you rely on and the shows that you love. And we couldn't do any of it without your support. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Avery Lill. COVID-19 cases, hospitalizations, and deaths have been declining while the number of vaccinations rise. But that good news is tempered by the emergence of viral variants in Colorado and across the country. Experts fear they could mess with everything from in-person learning to reopening the economy. CPR's John Daly and Andrea Dukakis are part of our COVID-19 reporting team. Welcome to you both. Thanks, Avery. Hi, Avery. Andrea, let's go over what we know about the variants in Colorado so far. The state has so far identified just two variants in Colorado. One is the L452 variant, first spotted in Denmark, and it spread rapidly in California. It's considered, quote, a variant under investigation, which means researchers are still looking into the effects. The other variant in Colorado, which you've probably heard of, was first spotted in the UK. It's also known as B117. And that falls under the category of, quote, variant of concern. It's described here by state epidemiologist Rachel Hurley. Variant of concern, like the UK variant, are variants where we've identified concerning characteristics of those variants. So things like increased transmissibility, variants that could potentially cause more severe disease, reduced effectiveness of treatments or vaccine, or that these variants could potentially be harder to detect with current tests. So the last numbers I looked at show the state has identified about 86 cases categorized as variants of concern, all are this UK variant. It does seem to have increased transmissibility and could potentially cause more severe illness and death, but vaccines do appear to be effective against it. Another 36 are these variants under investigation, the so-called California variant, and there is very early new research to suggest this California variant variant spreads more quickly and can cause more severe illness and maybe more fatal. Also, it could be even if you have antibodies because you've had the vaccine or had COVID in the past, this variant might be able to get around them. So the variant, again, which made its way to Colorado, might eventually be classified as a variant of concern. And how are those variants that you just described different from others found in the United States? 
So far, the other variants of concern uh, detected in the U.S. are the ones first identified in South Africa and one out of Brazil. Both are more contagious than the dominant strain in the U.S. A lot of research still needs to be done, and those variants have not yet been detected in Colorado. And this week's news is the Johnson & Johnson vaccine has been deemed safe and effective, though the vaccine appears to be less effective in preventing severe or moderate illness in South Africa in that variant. It's still more effective than some of the others that have been approved elsewhere. And I think it's important to talk about the various forms of effective. We all want total protection against COVID, but that's not realistic. What most public health officials are looking for is a vaccine that prevents severe cases resulting in hospitalization or death. And all the vaccines now approved do that on this dominant strain in the U.S. and also on the U.K. variant. John, how quickly are the number of these concerning variants growing in Colorado? Well, the number of these variants of concern have been growing slowly but steadily. Experts say the number of variant cases tend to double every 10 days. And Colorado has stayed close to that pace. That growth is causing some unease in the medical community. Here's Dr. Anuj Mehta. He's a pulmonologist with National Jewish Health and Denver Health. He also serves on the governor's expert emergency epidemic response committee. He says the pandemic has changed dramatically in just a few months. All of a sudden we have vaccines. And now all of a sudden we have variants. Whereas like if you think about it four months ago, we weren't really talking about either of these being kind of on the playing field. And so how they interact and and what we're learning on a daily basis, I think, is, you know, shifting every day. We have heard, though, how quickly the variant of concern that we have in Colorado, the B117, has spread since it showed up in the UK, right? Exactly. That is a big concern. It seems fairly tame right now, but you only have to look elsewhere to see what the future could look like. I spoke with Dr. John Samet. He's an epidemiologist with CU School of Public Health and does modeling for the state. On the good side right now in terms of Colorado, it's the fact that the epidemic curve has been in this continuous decline, although plateauing a bit at the moment, the last couple of months. The worrisome thing is how quickly it spread in the UK. Now, one nationally prominent epidemiologist Michael Osterholm from the University of Minnesota has a more ominous take. He predicts the darkest days of the pandemic could be ahead, saying the recent drop in cases in the U.S. represented the lull before the storm. He likened the situation to a category five hurricane 400 miles south of the beach heading straight towards the beach. And that's what these variants represent right now. So, John, what I'm hearing you describe is that there may be a race between the vaccine and virus variants. What do experts say about whether Colorado can win that race? You know, public health leaders in Colorado seem to be cautiously optimistic. The case levels are declining nationally, uh, though they're still at high levels. And Osterholm uh, is doubtful that the U.S. could win that race. He told Minnesota Public Radio that at the end of March, some 30 million out of 54 million over age 65 in the U.S. will still not have a drop of vaccine. And he predicts that in the U.S., the virus is poised to take off in early to mid-March and possibly exceed what we saw in January. And help us understand more about how we know a virus is circulating. Are we testing every sample in the state that's positive for COVID-19 for variants? 
Uh, no, it's not that easy to test. The tests for variants are highly labor-intensive and time-consuming because they involve genetic sequencing of samples, and that makes surveillance a little bit less robust than you'd want it to be. And the U.S. hasn't prioritized testing for variants like some other countries, but we're told that the state health department has already ramped up those tests and they plan to even further. A spokesperson for the health department noted they expect to find more variant cases in the next several months, in part because some variants spread faster, but also because we'll continue to increase our capacity to test for them. But right now, the number of variant cases found are based on a small sampling and don't represent the total number of variant cases that may be circulating in Colorado. Andrea, Colorado was the first state in the nation to identify a COVID-19 variant. Remind us about that situation. Right. That was at the end of December. But even before that, a woman named Emily Travanti and her staff had been on the lookout for some worrying strains. Travanti directs the Colorado State Public Health Laboratory. We started hearing the reports out of the UK in December that there was a variant that they were starting to see sort of taking over. And we, we became concerned that, you know, is this something happening in Colorado? We learned really quickly that this was a variant that had changes in the spike sequence and that the diagnostic tests that we were using in our laboratory could function as sort of a first level screen for whether or not this variant was in Colorado. And when did that test pick up the variant? Trevanti said in the early morning hours of December 29th, the lead sequencing scientist, Shannon Matzinger, who's in her lab, was home watching the results come in over her computer. And I imagine her, you know, sitting there with her coffee and her jammies doing this, watching the sequence on the computer from her home and watching as it was sort of materializing and filling in. And she saw that it was the variant. Um, According to Shannon, it was around 4.30 in the morning when she saw this, but she waited until exactly 6 o'clock when she felt like that was a reasonable time to let us all know that she could see this result. And so she immediately sent me a G-chat at 6 a.m., Right away, they started working to get the message out to the public before the New Year's celebration started. The goal was to make sure people didn't let their guard down, party too much on New Year's, and pass this new variant around. Right. And what can you tell us about the first person who was infected, the one who had the variant? Public health officials said it was a Colorado National Guardsman in his 20s. He had not recently traveled, but he had been helping out with the state's COVID-19 response. And interestingly, he actually had been assisting in a nursing home, and the variant didn't end up spreading into the nursing home. What can we do as individuals to reduce the spread of these variants? The best advice to fight the variants, doctors and public health experts say, is to Double down, triple down, however many downs you want to say, <laughs> and remain extra vigilant. Keep wearing masks, the right type, and do it properly. Keep up social distancing, physical distancing. Avoid crowded indoor settings. Keep washing your hands. And just like with the original version of the coronavirus, one of the best protections is the right mask, like an N95 or equivalent, one that fits, that's worn snugly on your face, covering the mouth and nose without gaps. You don't want to allow uh, that unfiltered air to leak out. So having a mask and wearing it 
properly can really help a lot. And you're describing these things that we've been hearing that we should be doing for months on end. This is a time when people are getting tired of all the rules. Yep. Uh, it's been nearly a year. People are losing patience with the restrictions, and they want to see other people. They want to travel, see their grandchildren, and travel for fun. And that's a concern for researchers like Alan Rudolph. He's the vice president for research at Colorado State University. We're all hearing about more travel. People are traveling more and the airports are getting more crowded. So, you know, we are in this race and let's hope we can vaccinate a lot more people very quickly. Okay, so a lot more vaccinations needed and more understanding of these variants cropping up. I want to thank you both. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Avery. CPR's Andrea Dukakis and John Daly talking about variants of the COVID-19 virus. Both have been covering the pandemic for nearly a year now. An aerospace engineer and a former ambassador, both Coloradans, believe the United States would be safer if women played a bigger role in national security. Jamie Landers is with Lockheed Martin, and Catherine Ebert Gray is director of global education at CU Denver. The two are chairing World Denver's International Women's Day next month, where the theme is Women in National Security. Jamie and Catherine, welcome to the show. Thank you, Avery. Jamie, let's start with you. You focus on rapid technology to speed up the pace at which Lockheed Martin develops and flies new missions. As an aerospace engineer at Lockheed, what role do you play in national security? At Lockheed Martin, we provide lots of satellite systems and space-based systems that protect our nation from advanced weather warning systems all the way down to the GPS and navigation on your phone. My team specifically looks at the gaps in technology and being able to advance that rapidly by committing with our partners, both in the government and the DOD and our commercial entities. And Catherine, at CU Denver, you work to expand opportunities for students to prepare for the global workforce. That includes preparing them with overseas study experience. You worked for the Foreign Service for 30 years with assignments in places like Egypt, Germany, the Philippines, Morocco, Papua New Guinea. Can you give me an example of where you've seen the importance of women playing a role in national security, either in the U.S. or elsewhere? Thank you, Avery. You know, in my last assignment as ambassador to Papua New Guinea, there's a province there called Bougainville, and Bougainville had decades of civil unrest. It actually came down to women who had had enough, even though they've been horrible victims of this of these battles and wars. It came down to them calling in international support, standing up against this, and then bringing peace to that area. And they still play a very important role in peacekeeping. Jamie, what specifically do you think women bring to the table, so to speak, when it comes to security issues? And we're talking about efforts to promote women to lead both domestic and global security efforts. I believe women really look to build diverse teams. Actually, there's research that shows that. And diverse teams are really critical and important when you're looking at negotiating and solving problems. Diverse teams tend to think innovatively and creatively. They work efficiently and collaboratively to find new solutions to potential issues that we have both domestically and globally. And what is an example of national security issue that you have witnessed a woman who showed outstanding leadership? And what were the qualities that she brought to the table? 
Well, I'll tell you a little bit about my time as an analyst when I was working in Washington, D.C. I had this great opportunity to present to a, a bunch of national security experts while we were sitting at the Pentagon. And I was actually only one of two females in the room. And I was sitting in the room with a female general. And during the presentation, several of the generals were interrupting me, asking very pertinent questions, but it was they weren't getting all of the information out. And so the female general actually stopped the presentation and said, Jamie is the expert in the room, so let us have her finish her presentation so that we can fully understand and absorb the information and then go back into ask questions. It was a nationally critical, timely analysis that we were presenting for a global event. Um, and getting that information out in a way that the generals could understand was critical. But her allowing me and giving me that space to present my analysis really allowed me to step into my confidence as a woman who had something to contribute in that room. And I wonder, is there ever a danger toward gaining equality when people spend too much emphasizing gender differences when we are talking, having a conversation like this? It's really about parity for me. It's not necessarily about the gender differences or the different contributions that you can provide or attributes that men have or female have. It's about creating that sense of belonging. Diversity and inclusion are very important. Diversity is differing perspectives. Inclusion is making sure those perspectives are heard. Belonging is having the trust to hear those perspectives and the space to allow them to exist in the same room. So really parity in management positions in national security leadership positions and global political positions is important because it creates that inclusion, diversity, but more importantly, that sense of belonging where people can trust their instinct to provide solutions. And Catherine, I want to bring you in here as well. How do you think about having this discussion when we're talking about differences and we're talking about having women in equal roles? Well, I've seen a number of ways where women in particularly foreign have been equal to men in many, many ways that they're out there in the field negotiating agreements with warlords on the ground in Afghanistan, signing security agreements around the country with, um, you know, our allies and our adversaries. Uh, Wendy Sherman, who will be coming back to the Department of State, confirmed was instrumental in signing agreements on um, armaments control in Iran. So uh, there's a lot of examples how we're already showing some parity at the Department of State, but there's no doubt that in many other agencies, there's a long ways to go. And this actually, this is a great point to bring up. In 2017, the Women, Peace and Security Act was enacted with strong bipartisan support requiring the United States to create a strategy that will increase women's participation in security efforts. One of the sponsors was Senator Jean Shanine of New Hampshire. She says that research shows when women are involved in negotiations, they are less likely to fail and more likely to last for 15 years or more. So there is good data to show that having women at the table really makes a difference in terms of how peace is negotiated, conflict is negotiated, and then how lasting it is. You both support full implementation of the act. What progress do you see happening as a result of the legislation? Catherine? I know at the Department of State that they've already focused on developing peace programs in certain countries. So their plan is focused on Myanmar, 
Iraq, South Sudan, South Sudan, and I'm sure other countries where they're really committing to bring women in to the conversation to address violence. So what does that look like? That means that they want to develop policies which include women. They're going to have grant assistance on the ground, make sure we continue to have women involved in higher education, and a lot of ways where we're going to integrate women. We already have programs like one we call Academy of Women Entrepreneurs, where we're teaching them about becoming an entrepreneur in 50 countries. And there's a plethora of ways that we're going to be able to make sure that women are very involved in national security in these countries. And Jamie, what about for you? What do you hope to see happen as a result of that legislation? I hope to see more women stepping into those roles and receiving the mentorship and the training. So the U.S. is required to have a strategy to grow women's participation in national security. And part of that looks like mentorship opportunities, training opportunities, opportunities to take new assignments um, and to provide that gender parity. I think there's still some barriers to entry. You know, in the 2020 workplace study done by McKinsey, it has shown that in middle management roles, they are typically held at 62% by men um, and only 38% by women. So I think there needs to be more women that come into those entry and middle level management roles and start providing that information. I really hope to see that that trend starts to change. The pandemic has made it clear that national security spans many industries, including supply chain management and public health. There have been lots of analyses that point to lower death rates from COVID-19 in women-led countries, New Zealand, for example. Do you think that there is a direct correlation? Well, Avery, you know, it's been really impressive to observe how well women have managed the pandemic. Um, and the general consensus is that women leaders have reacted much more swiftly and they assisted the families more. They locked down their borders more quickly. But And of course, there's been a lot of men that have been very effective. Look at Vietnam. But I also found it interesting that in one academic study, they found that there's actually multiple factors which contributed to why women were successful. For example, New Zealand and Ireland had easily controlled borders. And many of the countries that do have female leaders, they have cultural values, which include some of the traits of women, like inclusiveness, orientation, focus on health and families. So they were maybe more inclined to support women leadership and do a better job building consensus. On Didn't you love how the prime minister of Norway actually spoke to the children of her nation? How many men would do that? Well, I want to thank you both so much for joining me today. Thank you, Avery. In a delight. Thank you so much. Catherine Ebert Gray is Director of Global Education at CU Anschutz Medical Campus. Jamie Landers is with Lockheed Martin. The two are chairing World Denver's International Women's Day on March 8th, where the theme is Women in National Security. They believe it's critical for more women nationally and internationally to play leadership roles in the field. After the break, a Denverite investigation into a Denver street art gatekeeper. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Turn the page with Colorado Matters. Read a book with us, then meet the author. This time, Other People's Pets by Boulder novelist R.L. Mazes. I thought readers might really enjoy a character who can see the world almost through the eyes of animals. Join Colorado Matters Saturday to meet the author. 
sponsored by Wanabo Love Keller Mendenhall Smith Wealth Management Group of Wells Fargo Advisors. Tickets at cpr.org slash turn the page. Women are coming forward with allegations about a prominent leader in Denver's street art scene. Denver is a hub for artists from around Colorado and the country to paint murals and make their names in the industry. The women say the problem with this man illustrate how the arts community has failed to hold men in power to account. And a warning, this story is from Denverite reporter Maggie Donahue. It contains graphic depictions of sexual assault. Every summer for the past 11 years, for one weekend, Denver's streets are flooded with artists whose murals and graffiti art have helped to turn the River North neighborhood and the surrounding area into a sort of outdoor gallery. It's a festival called Crush Walls, and it's the largest street art festival in Colorado. It attracts thousands of people from all over the world. The Crush Walls Festival is a launching point for people like Robin Francis, whose artist name is Grow Love. But in September last year, Frances wrote an Instagram post explaining why she isn't participating in Crush anymore. That decision was hard for her, she says, because of how exciting being a featured artist at Crush is. It's not just painting a mural on a wall off Larimer for this festival. It's the people you meet. It is a network of people. And if you are going against a festival that employs all of these different artists, your career is then quite limited. Francis said on Instagram that she made that decision because she claims the founder of Crush Walls had sexually assaulted her when they dated in 2017. Francis says he strangled her without her consent and was later inappropriate with her then eight-year-old daughter in a truck. As soon as we started driving away, my daughter started crying. She's like, Mom, that wasn't right. I, Mom, that wasn't right. She just kept on saying that, Mom, that wasn't right. In the weeks that followed the post, more women came forward with claims against Crush's founder, Robin Monroe. These women and other community members say Monroe has a lot of clout in the art scene as a founder of Crush and a leader who has the ability to make or break artists' reputations and careers. Through his attorney, he denies every allegation you will hear in this story and the allegations made on social media, but he declined to be interviewed. These allegations did not just emerge last fall. Women and other community members say they have circulated for years. So Francis and several other women in Denver street art scene say their problem is not just with Monroe. It's with a system they say has allowed him to continue in his position of power through it all. And they feel particularly betrayed because the street art community initially felt open and progressive. Francis first brought up her concerns about Monroe in 2018. Since then, she says she has seen her relationships with local artists deteriorate. She's had to try to establish her career without the help of the network she had built up. Every arts community that I was involved with completely turned their backs to me. Everyone cut me off. It was like nobody cared, and it was the worst feeling I've ever felt in my life. When Frances aired her accusations against Monroe again this past September, it led more women to come forward. Jessica Vaughn wrote an Instagram post of her own detailing her allegations against Monroe, who she also dated. Vaughn says Monroe raped her a few weeks into their relationship. She said they'd had consensual sex before, but that night, he hit her increasingly hard with a belt. She said she asked Monroe to stop several times, but that he continued to hit her and initiate sex. Vaughn says she was afraid he'd keep hurting her if she resisted, and went along with the sex to make it stop sooner. I remember that night, I was like, I 
didn't feel good and I cried myself to sleep a little bit. It took me a little bit of time to really figure out what happened because I was like, my boyfriend. It was really confusing. Monroe's attorney says that Monroe has only engaged in consensual sex with his partners. But several other women I talked to for the story made similar allegations against Monroe. Vaughn and Francis say they're speaking out and reliving past painful experiences for a few reasons. They want Monroe to seek rehabilitation. They want to prevent more people from getting hurt. And they want to hold accountable the systems that kept Monroe in power. It just felt like, what will it take for people to listen? What will it take for people to start being accountable for their actions? and the actions of the people in their community. Other women also wonder why Monroe has continued to have such influence as one of the organizers of Crush, someone who supervises the artists and has a say in who gets to participate. Everybody knew. If people know that widespread, then what the hell is he still doing in power? Shannon Galpin is an artist and activist who says Monroe was verbally abusive towards her during Crush in 2019. She says she spoke to members of the community afterward who explained away her concerns, saying that that is just what he's like. Gender violence and misogyny in the arts, misogyny in all structures of our arts community is a real problem. That could be one reason none of Monroe's accusers have gone to the police. Sexual violence generally is one of the most underreported crimes, according to Dr. Anne DePrince, a psychology professor at the University of Denver who specializes in trauma. The idea that when sexual assault happens, people pick up the phone and call the police is just not true. DePrince says victims of intimate partner violence have a host of reasons to not tell anyone about it, much less report it to the police. When we hear disclosures, people tell us that they have been assaulted. We've got to work against that initial instinct to say, why didn't you leave or why did you wear that? To instead ask, what do you need? How can I help? When Francis spoke up last September, the nonprofit arts membership organization in the area called the Rhino Art District, which partnered with the Crushwells Festival, promised it would investigate the allegations. But all six of the women I spoke to say they were not contacted as part of any investigation. A few months later, in December 2020, the art district cut ties with Monroe and Crushwalls. Both parties say the decision was mutual. The art district declined to comment for this story about whether it did an investigation or why it dropped Crushwalls. The decision means Crushwalls will lose the financial and organizational support of the nonprofit, but it still leaves Monroe in a position of power, perhaps even more so now that the festival is back under his sole control. Monroe declined to talk about his future with the festival. Francis and other women I talked to for this story say the art district's decision to cut ties with Monroe was too little, too late. Shannon Galpin says Denver's street art scene needs to have some hard conversations. I think that what has to happen now is saying, are we on the side of creating safe spaces for all artists and that we are against abuse in the art? If so... How are we going to come together? In addition to all the women I talked to for this story, I asked 28 prominent artists if they would speak to me about crush walls. Only two agreed to comment. Both say they will not participate in the Crush Festival this year. I'm Maggie Donahue, Denverite. Read Maggie Donahue's reporting at denverite.com and at CPR.org. There's also an article about how the investigation came together. 
Amanda Gorman sealed her place as a household name when she delivered her poem, The Hill We Climb, just before Joe Biden and Kamala Harris were sworn in as president and vice president last month. We will rebuild, reconcile, and recover in every known nook of our nation, in every corner called our country. Our people, diverse and beautiful, will emerge battered and beautiful. When day comes, we step out of the shade of flame and unafraid. The new dawn blooms as we free it. For there is always light, if only we're brave enough to see it, if only we're brave enough to be it. The 22-year-old former National Youth Poet Laureate is now the youngest inaugural poet in United States history. She inspired Colorado poet Uche Ubuji to write a poem of his own in response. For our daughter, poems were once the play space with dad, a way into the teacher's sweet book, a needle to wield and beef with peers. Today, she sees in a poem the only correct scepter for a queen, the seat of a power that lies in no old royal we, but rather in regal trees we can nurture out of the weed stock of words, reared from seeds which also feed the many with what truly means. Today, our daughter sees poetry through her elder sister, in the same color of raised fist, hers, in the same elegant gesture at wrist, hers, in the same chase after a breath's mist, hers, in the same desire to hold away old deceits. Her counterpart in the loud-spoken art is as proud as any yellow-robed priestess in red headdress should be before a needful crowd. That's an excerpt of The Amanda Gorman Effect. Uche Obuji of Superior, Colorado wrote and performed it. He joins me now with his 10-year-old daughter, Nkem. Welcome to you both. Thank Hello. you. Hello. The inauguration where Amanda Gorman spoke was a month ago, so that's basically a century in pandemic time. Uche, take me back to that day when you first watched her perform The Hill We Climb. What struck you? I just remember that, you know, I kind of paid a little bit of attention to the inauguration, but that blew me away. And then afterwards, I couldn't really pay attention to anything else because I was just thinking about, you know, what an amazing poem she wrote and how incredibly she performed it. And Cam, you were at school while Amanda Gorman was performing live, but your dad said he couldn't wait to show it to you when you got home. What did you think when he showed it to you? So I was really excited and just kind of like for how young she was, it just was like really amazing. I think I asked you what you part you liked about it and you said you really liked, you know, where she was talking about herself. Yeah, I just I really liked how she kind of put herself into it because it made it like more personal for her. Yeah, it's vulnerable. Uche, how did this moment become your own poem? Well, first of all, there was the magic of the poem itself. And being a poet and kind of recognizing the technical achievement of what she had done, because she basically brought together Harlem Renaissance, classical prosody, as we'd call it, with a lot of hip hop. And that is something that I've been dreaming for in poetry. I mean, I try in my way to bring those elements together in my own work. In my own work, I add the African element as well, being a Nigerian immigrant. 
I've always thought that they are such a powerful connection. If we could get over how we put down each other's language, how maybe some people in the hip hop or, you know, Harlem Renaissance might put down the classical stuff as being too stuffy and old school and how maybe a typical poetry professor might put down hip hop or uh, slam style poetry as being too brash and shallow and recognize the power that we have as a nation with all of these traditions cohabitating and go for it. And she did. She went for it. She showed everyone that you don't have to be one thing or the other thing. In effect, from a style perspective, she code switched in the poem. And then, of course, having that experience, watching it with Nkem and discussing it afterwards and realizing it was powerful, you know, for Nkem as well, that feeling of something special having happened drove the poem the next day. So poet to poet, like you can see what she achieved in this technical way. And then it also struck you really personally. You wrote a poem about your relationship with your daughter and the two of y'all's relationship with poetry. How did that come out of this? I've always, like any father, wanted, you know, my kids to have some of the same interests that I do, especially the ones I'm passionate about. And, you know, I had three older boys and then Ken. And, you know, they were interested in poetry, but they never really latched onto it. And Kim really did. She instantly would, you know, engage in wordplay with me, you know, from pretty much as long as she could speak. It was so much fun and she would write poems and, you know, she you know, actually won an award in Lafayette for one of her poems. But of course, you know, she's growing up, right? And <laughs> and she has other interests and I can see that happening. And, you know, it's this parent, I'm sort of desperate. Oh, let me hold on to this spark. And uh, when I saw that effect that Amanda Gorman had on everyone who saw it, including her, it gave me something to really say, wow, look, there's somebody who's taking this all the way to the top. And it just made me feel so special that, my daughter had seen that possibility manifest on the public stage. And Kim, you've been writing poems since you were really little. What do you like about writing poetry? Well, I like how you can like freely express yourself because like with some school writing, you have to write, at least at our school, you have to write about like a specific topic. But I like in poetry how you can kind of just write about like anything because I really like music and you can kind of make poetry like music. And I really like that. And it just, it's really calming also. You're really kind of a singer-songwriter, aren't you? And that's what (laughs) you do with the poetry. (laughs) That is such a beautiful way to put it. Your dad also wrote, Today my daughter sees poetry through her elder sister in the same color of raised fist, hers in the same elegant gesture of wrist, hers. Did you see something of yourself in Amanda Gorman? Well, I liked liked how confident she was because I feel like Normally, I'm pretty confident and I could just like relate to a lot, just kind of like maybe how she was saying it. Yeah. 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 And Uche, it seems like you saw something of Amanda Gorman and your daughter. Yes. I might have been projecting a lot there. But yeah, it's just that, you know, the fact that we don't always value girls expressing themselves. And, you know, when you have a young lady, and and I think it's important that she's young because she is speaking for the youth who they're the future in the country and they've needed to assert themselves in these times. So I think seeing that a young lady on the public stage expressing herself that much, to me, reemphasized for me, for Nkem, how important that is and that we value that, you know, know, honestly, Nkem, we do value it when you express yourself. 
And you mentioned, Duce, that when you wrote this poem, you were thinking about the events leading up to the inauguration. And it is hard to list all of the things that led up to it and all of the ways this last year has been tumultuous. But in the poem, you allude to knowing that Nkem saw the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol on the news. You immigrated to the United States from Nigeria, like you mentioned. What was it like for you to watch that unfold in a country where you've chosen to live? It was it was quite crazy. It, you know, I have seen riots in Nigeria. I don't want to give the impression that, you know, there's a riot every time you turn the corner. But I was in Nigeria in the, throughout the 80s, and it was a pretty politically intense time. But I, when I came to the, we came to the U.S., my parents brought me in order to basically get some normalcy. You know, I was in university and they were like, let's just get our kids through education and see what happens from there. And so people like us, we come to America for the stability, for the justice, for the equality, for the opportunity. That's what we come here for. It's our dream when it was my dream when I was in Nigeria. And when I came here for a long time, to be honest, it's mostly matched up to that. But seeing things like the January 6th insurrection were terrifying because you started to wonder, could it all unravel? And I had my kids asking me questions about, could it all unravel? Yeah. And Kim, what was it like for you to see it? So in my class, we were talking about it. And my teacher really likes to like hear about our opinions. And it was kind of scary, but I was really, really happy that I was... Well, this is kind of like uh, the last question you asked, how like how Amanda... Gorman is like kind of confident. I have a lot of opinions and I talk a lot. And so it was really nice to be able to talk to my friends and like my teacher and my classmates about it. I'm glad that you have a class and a teacher that values your opinions. That's really big. What has this year been like for you? This has been a crazy year. It's been honestly 2020. I know it was not great. It was definitely not great for a lot of people, but it was pretty awesome for me because I met online since I was online so much because of Corona. I have a bunch of online friends and I met pretty much all of them during the pandemic. And also, I'm really I'm really happy that I'm in the class that I'm in because I just really, really um, since we talk so much like every about everything in our class, I kind of started to like speak my mind a lot more. Shout out to Miss Trouble. (laughs) she's probably gonna watch this eventually so thank you for being my teacher that is great i love that this has been a year of making different kinds of connections for you that's really good to hear uche how has it been for you this year as a parent helping your kids navigate everything it really has been a year of contradictions you know this worry and uncertainty but gratitude Of course, a lot that's happened between the pandemic, between the concern about the safety of black people like, you know, like I am, like my kids are. But those were the the hard times. And of course, that uncertainty over safety, over justice, over the future of America, you know, spilled over into the very contentious election season. But at the same time, while a lot of it's kind of like in Kim said, you know, there are a lot of big things in the world that were concerning but, you know, at home, we just kind of banded together. We got we got closer. We found ways to support each other and to make sure we all felt safe and we all felt protected and loved. And I'm very grateful that I, I have a family in which that's possible. So quite a contradiction. Yeah, I'm glad that I have kind of like what he was saying about our family. I'm really glad that I have 
three older brothers that I can talk to about like a lot of stuff and that's really nice and that our parents care about us a lot. <laughs> yeah, support is this really good support. Um yeah. Bringing it back to your poem, Uche, you wrote that In Kim needs somebody to speak for her beyond the speech to her, to take action, find traction, then hand her the baton. In Kim, obviously, you are very good at expressing yourself and telling us your opinions. So, Uche, unpack these lines a little bit for us. What do you mean that she needs somebody to speak for her? And yeah, so as I was writing that, I kind of, it felt right. But it actually took me a moment to unpack for myself why it felt right. But I, I think I've managed to. And it really is the fact that it feels to me as if this country is going through necessary change, absolutely necessary change. And the generations between mine and my daughters are really the vanguard of that change. And I think it's amazing that they're looking to improve the lives of so many people in the country. But meanwhile, there is this tension that leads to events such as January 6th. And the younger folks at the end of that spectrum, it's I think it's just important that their voices don't get lost. And typically people don't listen to what grade schoolers have to say. And so I think right now it's important to make sure that we're keeping in touch with young boys and girls like in chem, understanding how they're feeling and getting that into the conversation. We just need to have a new normal, I think, of having the young speak for themselves. And that happens when we, first of all, speak for them to the world that they have something to say. And Kim, what do you think about that? Well, like what he was saying at the beginning, how um, I like how in poetry, there are like a million secret messages that you can unfold oh. and like make them your own meaning. Yes. <laughs> so I really like that. Do you sometimes put secret messages into your poems, I think? I put secret messages into everything. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Um <laughs> In the final stanza of your poem, Uche, it's about how much hope Amanda Gorman gave you for the future and for your daughter's future. Inkem, what is giving you hope right now? Um, Definitely all my friends, for sure. And You're kind to each other, right? Yeah. And then all my family, of course, and my pets. Um, Our gecko just passed away a little while ago. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, I'm really glad that my friends... And my teachers and my family were there to support me with that. Yeah, I'm sorry you lost your gecko. Losing pets is always, it's really hard. Yeah. Well, Uche and Kim, since the Amanda Gorman effect is about your relationship, I want to give the two of you a chance to talk without me asking questions. Uche, do you have questions for Kim? Sure. Um, so Kim, I'm just curious. Hamilton is one of Kim's favorite musicals. <laughs> musicals. And when you watch Hamilton and you pretty much memorize all the words of it, <laughs> and they've got all that rapid fire wordplay going back and forth in it, do you ever like sometimes think, oh, yeah, I can I can do something like that? Yeah, well, I guess I like I said, I really like music a lot. And so I memorize a lot of words to all the music. And then I kind of just like me and my friends have a similar taste in music. And like we like the same artists. So we like to talk about that a lot. So one more question then, Kim. You're, as you said, you have a big friend group and it's kind of neat that you have some boys in there. You have some girls in there, some black people, some white people. And I think you also have some people who have other differences. And I'm just curious, 
how does your friend group deal with, you know, people who are different in different ways? And do you try to take care of each other to make sure everyone's comfortable regardless of those differences? And if so, how do you do it? Um, like you said, we're all kind of different races, which makes it really unique. Because I know some friend groups just have like a lot of people who are the same, but I really like our friend group because we're all kind of like just we all fit in in the friend group. You all have your but own. But like in the most group. unique way possible. And Kim, before we go, do you mind reading us or reciting for us one of your poems? Sure. So this one's called Don't Judge People. It's I think I wrote it in like 2018. Um, some people are big, some people are small, but honestly, I'd like to honor them all. Black, white, tan, brown, large, thin, skinny, plump. We're all the same no matter what. Love each other in and out. Take care of them, not just yourself. Old, young, teen, adult. Bullied or nerd, cool or not, hurt or not. Police, mom, dad, dog. Boy or girl, man or woman, new or old. Respect each other, nice or not. I love it. Thank you so much for sharing that. And thank you both so much for sharing your poetry. Oh, you're welcome. And thank you so much for having us. This is fun. Bye. That's poet Uche Obuji, who lives in Superior, Colorado. His poetry collection, Ndeowo, Colorado, won the 2014 Colorado Book Award. His new book of poems, Nchefu Road, comes out this fall. He joined me with his 10-year-old daughter, Nkem, to talk about one of his most recent poems, The Amanda Gorman Effect. That's Colorado Matters for today. Thank you for joining us, and thank you to the team that brings this show to air. Carl Bielek. Ali Butner. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Pedro Lumbrano, Alexandra McMahon, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey, Ryan Warner. And I'm Avery Lill, with special thanks to Denverite reporter Maggie Donahue. Don't forget you can download this as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining us. This is CPR News.